Myrian Jones is a journalist, formerly at the BBC and currently editor at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. This is Myrian Jones. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Myrian Jones. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. No problem. Uh, so I had heard about you um, through the story of Jimmy Savile, who was a former BBC presenter who was enormously popular in the UK. I think he had something like 20 million uh, viewers of his show at one point a week, which is uh, mind boggling. And he also, over the course of his tenure at the BBC, was abusing thousands of girls at the charities he worked at, at orphanages around the UK. Uh, Terrible, terrible criminal. Um, You met him when you were younger, correct? Yes, when I was in my teens, um, my aunt ran a very strange institution called Duncroft, and it was intended for young girl criminals who are more intelligent than the average. It was a sort of experimental institution, and it really was somewhere at, it felt like it was something out of fiction. It was a stately home. It was supposed to be where uh, King, Bad King John had stayed the night before Magna Carta back in 1215. Uh, and it was half stately home and half prison. Uh, and, you know, like the cook had cooked for the king of uh, Egypt. Uh, the, it, it was an extremely weird institution. Yeah. And what that would happen would be about once or twice a year, they'd have a big garden party there to raise funds uh, for things like minibuses so they could take the kids out and so on. And all sorts of celebrities would turn up, minor royals, uh, politicians, film stars, and into all that strolled Jimmy Savile. And the thing about Jimmy Savile was he was absolutely huge in Britain, but in America, you'd never have heard of him. You'd have heard of the people he was associating with, the Beatles, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, Prince Charles, all those people you'd have heard of. It's a bit like an American football star who's you know, like huge in America, but the rest of the world doesn't even know who they are. It's that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and this guy, that was kind of his MO to, to get access to victims is he would go to places like Duncroft and donate money or, or facilitate the donation of money and ingratiate himself with these institutions. You said when you first encountered him, you felt like he had a screen up between himself and other people. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, very much so. I mean, he had all these uh, catchphrases, boys and girls, boys and girls, you know, and he would he would wave his hands in front of him. Uh, and it was almost like a physical screen, but also it felt like a mental screen. Wow. So I didn't think at that point he was a bad person, but I knew I wasn't seeing who he was. And I wondered, I mean, it was the first TV star I'd met I wondered if maybe everyone in telly was like that, that they had a sort of screen right. sheltering them from the public. Yeah, that, that seems important, the screen sheltering him from, from other people so that nobody can see him. Do, do you think anybody really encountered the, the real him besides, say, like his victims? I think there were people who saw through it, yes. Uh, it was particularly interesting when you met people who'd come from abroad. So I had a couple of friends, who'd, one who'd moved from Luxembourg when she was a student, uh, one who'd moved from Canada. 
And they immediately saw straight through him and went, you know, what on earth are you doing? You know, we had been sort of groomed and taken in by this over the years. We'd grown up with this strange character on all the radio stations, all the TV stations. You couldn't get away from him. He was everywhere. And he was in the company of all the people we were supposed to admire. You know, the pop stars, the politicians, the royalty. He was everywhere. They all trusted him. So we must trust him. But when you came in from outside and saw this bizarre spectacle those people went what on earth is going on here yeah I, I think that's part of the reason why this story has gained so much traction and the netflix documentary about it became so popular not just in the uk but in places like america because i i didn't know who this guy was and i i took one look at him and he's got this bleach blonde hair he's waving a cigar around he just seems so creepy it's like how yeah. are people not not calling the cops on this guy um, and you have something that you uncovered is you have this phenomenon where there are thousands of victims and people talk about it after the fact, like, oh, you know, his behavior was kept secret. And in a lot of ways, that's not true because thousands of people know this secret. They just don't know about each other. Um, but, but there is more than that, far more than that. So as you say, he deliberately targeted institutions most pedophiles they might operate in one institution or they might target individuals he deliberately collected these places where there were powerless people who he could target and where those institutions felt in his debt as you say through fundraising etc he was a great charity fundraiser uh stoke mandeville hospital which is one of the places he frequented and where he had an office uh, he raised five million pounds for them in a very short time. It meant that the bosses of these institutions didn't want to listen. If there were people inside saying, I'm suspicious of him, I'm worried by him, they wouldn't listen. He was worth too much for, to them. And that was true of the BBC, too. So for the BBC, he was bringing in these record, record audiences. You know, like 20 million audience in Britain is like uh, 100 million audience in America. Okay. I mean, it's just a colossal, colossal audience. Um, and they knew, BBC bosses knew for at least 1973 what he was doing. And their only worry was that it might get in the press. And the press were worried about covering him for two reasons. You I mean, I know in 1965, for instance, um, a crime correspondent on the Sunday People wanted to expose him and his editor said but he's our best columnist you know we can't we can't lose our best columnist because you want to expose him which is very similar to what happened with me eventually at BBC but the um, the other reason is something you don't have in America which is Britain's libel laws really protect the rich and powerful and worthless uh, against any allegation our libel laws are the opposite of the First Amendment. Yes. You know, we really are hampered by that. And time and again, people tried to expose him and they knew that they would be ripped apart in court, particularly because he targeted these vulnerable people. So they're going to turn up in court and they're going to say, um, they're going to be cross-examined. Were you a criminal? Yes. Did you ever tell lies? Yes. How old were you at the time? 14. How can we rely on what you think you saw at 14? On the other hand, you've got Savile, who had 
QCs, the lawyers who were sharp as anything could rip these people apart. Also, as character witnesses, who is he going to turn up with in court? Prince Charles, the Pope who gave him a papal knighthood, Margaret Thatcher. I mean, the imbalance in power is absolutely enormous. Yeah, the, the libel laws, where isn't the standard that you have to prove that what you said was true? Yes, yes. And, it, and it's actually much, much tougher than that, in effect. Uh, the, and incredibly expensive. So, you know, even before you go to publication, um, somebody can run up, say, £100,000 in legal costs before you even publish your story. And if it goes to trial, it's going to be like a million quid uh, with maybe a million quid costs for the other side and a million quid for you. You know, it can easily reach yeah. three million pounds. I'm curious, and maybe this is naive, but even just initiating a trial against a guy like that, the, the media coverage that that would generate, the, the stain in effect that that would cast on his reputation, couldn't it potentially have overturned some rocks on the way? Yeah, but it's very, very difficult to get to get to that point. Um, you know, your lawyers will be advising you, we are bound to lose this case. We have no chance of winning this case. It is going to cost a million quid. It is going to tie up the whole management for the next two years while you try and get through this. Right. Do you really want to do that? Um, and, uh, it, you know, there have been cases like that in Britain. There was a, a novelist and politician called Geoffrey Archer who sued a paper back in the 90s. And what they were saying was totally true, but he won the case and it cost the paper a million quid. Mm. And nobody wrote anything about Geoffrey Archer for the next 10 years. It was only when somebody came forward and said, this is how we fix the case, that somebody did that. And then suddenly he was exposed, but he was running for mayor of London by that stage and so on. Oh my God. Yeah, and that, and you know, he went to prison in the end. Yeah. But, but that shows the level of protection that libel laws give. That is so maniacal to be on the, on the edge of prison or the, the, the mayor, you know. It, yeah. it's, it seems like, a, however, despite these libel laws, if people were determined enough, they, they could have brought this guy to justice sooner. Um, someone, well, go, go ahead, please. I mean, there again, the other protection he had was from the police. Okay. So because of his royal patronage, if you're the chief constable of somewhere, you know, London or Manchester or somewhere, you mm -hmm. want to have a knighthood at the end of your time in office. Prince it, Charles. It, hmm? I, I'm sorry. Is, is that common for like a police chief to get a knighthood? Oh yeah. Yeah. Big police chiefs would get, would get a knighthood. Okay. But that is technically in the gift of Prince of, of the, you know, the monarch right. and Savile would directly threaten people. I know of people who are directly threatened who are in senior positions. Uh, if you go ahead and do this or that, if you don't do what we want, you won't get a knighthood. So first of all, you've got the victim coming forward who is, and I know victims who did go to the police and the first police officer they went to basically said, we don't want to have anything to do with this. You know, this is one of the most famous people in the country. He right. raises millions for charity and you are some scruffy little urchin coming to me. Right. I also know of police officers who took that seriously and went to the next level up the chain. And it was their senior officers who said to them, there's no way that, you know, the chief constable is going to 
going to go along with this. Yeah. You know, we can't take on the royal family and the prime minister and everyone else. You know, we just cannot do that. Were those threats that he made, do you think that they were legit? Like if, if this constable had actually investigated that he could have got gotten him denied a knighthood? Uh, well, no, this specific one that I know about is actually health chiefs who are going to close a hospital near where Prince Charles lives, Highgrove. Okay. And this is back in the 80s. And Prince Charles and Savile were in the room. Prince Charles argued that they should not close the hospital. They said they were going to. Prince Charles left the room and Savile came over and said, you won't get a knighthood if you close this hospital. They did close the hospital and they didn't get knighthoods. Wow. And, and why did he want the hospital open just to keep access to victims? Uh, no, no, no. It was Prince Charles who wanted the hospital open because it was there really as a facility in case anything happened to him. I see. So, you know, it was unrelated to the Savile thing, but he introduced Savile as his health advisor. And it was Savile who then was the hard man in the room to deliver the threat after Prince Charles. I see. I see. So Prince Charles, you know, we don't know this, but it sounds like he was basically using Savile as an enforcer in, in this scenario. It's certainly what the two health chiefs thought. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, one of the, the open questions to me is, why I get why some poor hospital is willing to look the other way to to pull in millions of dollars. But like, what what the hell does Prince Charles have, have to gain? You know, like you're you're royalty. You don't have to be around this this urchin. Um, so things like that seem like okay. I, I can understand the relationship a little bit better. But it seems like they had a, a lot of correspondence. A lot of you know, Prince Charles would reach out. To, to Savile about, you know, how to frame things in the media. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the relationship? It seems important. Yeah. So Prince Charles uh, is uh, brought up in the royal family. He's cut off from ordinary people. He wants a contact with the real world and he wants popularity. And here is this popular northern entertainer who is reaching out to him. I'm, Remember... I'm, I'm... I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Just for people outside, no, the, when we say northern, why is that significant? Northern working class, not metropolitan, not part of the London elite or whatever. He appears to be this fresh face, you know, a voice of the ordinary man who at the same time is extraordinary because he's extremely popular and can advise Prince Charles how to make himself popular, how to make himself appeal to ordinary people. So in a similar way, he cultivated Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister at the time as well. And again, in her case, she wanted popularity. You know, if you're a politician, you want above everything else to get votes and to be popular. And he was a shortcut to getting that popularity. You know, he would invite her on his show, Jim will fix it. So ordinary people would see her as somebody who was appealing and so on. Um, he, he deliberately ingratiated himself with these people. You know, he created his protection with local police officers in Leeds where uh, they would, to make sure that if any complaints came in about him, they would be discarded, you know, at a national level with people like Prime Minister and Prince Charles. Uh, no, he, would, he very carefully and systematically went about this. And, and what's interesting is that he had to really struggle to get a knighthood himself. 
didn't he? Yes. And I think what happened there is that every time Margaret Thatcher like recommended him for a knighthood, he was turned down. There is a sort of diligence committee that sits there. My suspicion is that they were getting stuff from MI5 saying, do not go near this. Um, and again and again, they refused. It was only right at the end, you know, after she'd been prime minister for 11 years that she managed to get it through. Uh, because in those days during the Cold War, MI5 kept files on anyone who was close to the prime minister or to royalty. You know, we know that that was in case of blackmail by the Russians or whatever. They needed to know what the dirt was on these people. Mm. There is no way that there wouldn't have been a file on Savile, given how close he was to the royal family and the prime minister. OK, I, I see what you mean when we you, you said earlier, uh, you know, th this was not just a secret among his thousands of victims, but but potentially maybe even like thousands of other people who were yeah. positions. Of I mean, senior people, you know, in 1973 at the BBC, the head of Radio 1 and the head of Radio 2, which, you know, were the biggest radio stations in the country. Um, you know, unlike America, we have big national stations rather than local smaller. Um, they knew they had been told that he was bringing underage girls back to his flat after Top of the Pops or whatever the TV pop show that he did. Mm -hmm. um, they questioned him about it. They didn't ask him to stop doing it. They were worried that it would appear in the papers and he assured them that it wouldn't appear in the papers. And that was an end to it. And two successive sort of controllers at that level knew that. Um, and it's if they knew it, everyone at the top of the BBC must have known about it. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned um, this person, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Douglas Muggeridge. Uh, yes, he was he was he was one of those controllers of the big radio stations who, you know, was questioning Savile, but <laughs> let him go and let him get away with it, really. But but didn't Savile, when he questioned him, didn't he admit it? Yeah, no, he he he, he did. But he said, uh, the reason I'm bringing underage girls back to my flat is to protect them. Oh, because who knows who they could meet out on the street? Oh, God, what, what a... <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but you'd expect a, a career pedophile to have a better excuse than that, you know? Yeah, but he'd obviously been spotted. It, you know, there were obviously people had seen it happen, so he couldn't deny the fact of it. He came up with, a, as you say, a used excuse, but it was accepted by the BBC bosses. They either believed it or they didn't want to deal with the consequences, and I think it was the latter. I, I want to get into um, the the story of your um, bringing, you know, his crimes to light. And I, I'm curious, when you started talking to victims, uh, were you surprised? Were they surprised at, at the extent of the abuse? Well, it's it developed over time. Um, although, as I say, I didn't I wasn't suspicious of him back when I was a teenager when I met him. Yeah. In about 1990, when I was uh, in my, um, that's a good question, how old was I? <laughs> uh, in, in about 1990, uh, when I was in my early 30s, um, a very influential journalist wrote a piece in a national paper saying that every uh, Fleet Street reporter they'd ever talked to thought that Jimmy Savile was a paedophile. 
Mm. And that immediately made me think, what on earth was going on back at Duncroft when I was there? What was he doing taking 14-year-old girls out in his convertible Rolls Royce? What was really happening? And from then on, I started looking. And I heard, when I was looking at uh, pedophiles in the Catholic Church in the early 2000s, again, because he was a Catholic, that came up again in the edge of that. Uh, and there was also a TV programme which, list, you know, raised those allegations with him in a soft way, but raised them in about 2000. So it was increasingly more and more people were suspicious of him. Um, I could never find victims. I was in the wrong bit of the BBC. I wasn't in Radio 1 and 2. I wasn't in Top of the Pops. I was over on the news side. Um, but I kept hearing stories and I would try and follow them up. It's only with the start of social media uh, we had a thing called Friends Reunited, which was uh, people who'd been to school together reuniting. And I would look up Duncroft on there and there would be hints about something had been going on. Mm. And it looked to me very much as if it was Savile, but no more than hints. And then I read um, a sort of online autobiography by one of the girls who'd been there, a woman called Karen Ward. And everything about it, all this fanciful stuff about garden parties with celebs, stately home, you know, all this stuff was in there. I knew that was true. I think anyone else reading it would think it was fantasy. The only bit I had to believe that was that somebody called JS, and I knew who that was, had taken them out in the car and then uh, sort of demanded oral sex and so on from them, etc. So I felt pretty sure by early 2011 that something had happened at Duncroft. As we started to investigate after he died, it became clear that Stoke Mandeville Hospital, something had happened. Hope de la Garenne, which was a children's home in Jersey. You're starting to think now, every institution that he was part of, something was going on. Broadmoor, uh, Jimmy's Hospital in Leeds. Uh, so I'm thinking that maybe he's abused at 10 different places and there are maybe 10 victims in each place. By the time they stop our story, I'm thinking 100, 100 victims at 10 institutions. Obviously, I had no idea that it was 10 times that, you know, the um, that he probably raped at least 100 people and abused thousands. Yeah, that's that, that is you've been immersed in this. So does it ever like does the shock of it ever, ever wear off? Or you talk to someone new and you go, oh, my God, all over. Well, every time anything happens about this, people get in touch with me out the blue. Yeah. So after the uh, Netflix documentary, um, somebody came to me and told me about another institution about a mile away from Duncroft, which I knew nothing about. Um, two new victims who had never reported to anyone who were from Broadmoor, uh, kids who were visiting their parents who are members of staff there and have been abused by him. Um, they came forward to me. Every time you find more and more, you know, the official number of victims is something like 450. They were the people who went to the police. But you've got to put on top of that the number of people who died before that, you know, because he was abusing for years. And far, far more the people who wouldn't go to the police. They're ashamed. They still don't want to go back there. You know, everyone knows that with sexual assaults, the reporting rate is very, very low. I think, you know, we're talking at the very least of a couple of thousand victims. Yeah, and, and, and potentially more. I mean, guy was active for decades, you know. Yes, 
Yeah. I mean, the first indication we have, he's supposed to have come up against the police in about 1958. And the final victims would have been in the 2000s. So, you know, that is nearly 50 years. How, even for someone uh, who is just utterly selfish and only concerned with their own pleasure, um, it seems like Jimmy Savile's way of of being would be... uh, antithetical to that because boy that sounds stressful to have the cloud of the police you're so famous you'd think that if you got exposed you're not just getting exposed to you know your immediate community but on the world stage like god that has to be really stressful well there are two things there one is he had a balance in his head he really believed in god and he believed that when it got to the pearly gates he would say, this is the good stuff I've done. This is the bad stuff. The good stuff, raising money for charity, all these things would hold him in good stead and would outbalance in the weighing scales the bad that he had done. And he very much had that in his head. And then the other thing going on there is he liked nearly being found out. He got a thrill out of it. And that's something that came through very much out of the Netflix documentary uh, all the way, all the time he's hinting in public at what he is and who he is, but he's just going up to that line and then drawing back at the last minute. Uh, that gave him a thrill. He got a huge thrill out of that. Yeah, it, there was a compilation at one point in that documentary where he keeps saying, you know, oh, my case comes up next Thursday. And he says it on like 10 different programs. And it, it's so bizarre. Just okay, that- and have you thought about the words, comes up next Thursday? Hmm. The initial letters. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Do you think that was intentional or or is that just? No, he kept kept doing it. He kept doing it and doing it. He could have said, comes up next Wednesday, couldn't he? And he always went with that. Wow. I didn't even realize that. That's clever. Kind of. I mean, it was pointed out to me after the Netflix film. Several people got in touch and said, have you noticed? And I hadn't noticed at that point. But once yeah. he pointed out, it just makes an awful lot of sense. What was the deal with his mom, by the way? There, there was some point where, like, journalists have asked him about this. Like, hey, your mom passed away and you spent, like, a few extra days with the body. And some people accused Yeah, no, no, it was, it was a very unhealthy relationship, like most of his relationships. Uh, it was very, very unhealthy. Uh, he was obsessed with his mother. Um, you know, I don't know what was going on there. I'm not a psychologist. But, yeah, there was something very weird going on there. Okay, that's all we'll say, something weird. Um, what, so when you are compiling this report and you are expecting to broadcast it and expose yeah. one of the stars of the BBC, um, yeah. that didn't happen. I, I believe during the, you, you were supposed to air it on like December 7th and yeah. then they yeah. did the Christmas tributes to, to Jimmy Savile instead. So yeah, about a week, about a week before that, you know, we'd got to the point it was up on the whiteboard in the office when it was going to transmit. We were making the, the report. We we're going to have live people off the back to put it to people. Uh, the news operation was gearing up to put it out on every channel. It was obviously going to be an absolutely huge story. You know, people have been trying for years to show that he was a paedophile. Now we, now we could show it. Um, and 
about a week before they announced the Christmas schedules and the Christmas schedules were wall to wall tributes for Jimmy Savile, who had died a month earlier. Um, a special tribute edition of the show that he had that had 20 million viewers, uh, which was called Jim will fix it was going to be presented by a guest presenter. There were obits of him on all channels. We're going to go out tributes on radio, every TV channel. It was huge. The day they announced those tributes on the 29th of uh, November was the day we were told to stop working on our exposure of him. Uh, and, you know, we were told that that was no longer a story. Jimmy Savile being a paedophile was not a story. Jimmy Savile being a paedophile at institutions up and down the country, at the BBC, that was not a story. Uh, and, and, and we were blocked. Who, who communicated this to you? Uh, our editor, Peter Rippon, who is the editor of Newsnight, which is the programme I was working on, but we believed it was coming from much higher up. And, and did your editor seem sorry that, that he had to be saying this to you? He was signalling to us that um, it was out of his control. It wasn't something that he could do anything about. Has he come out since then and, and explained any part of his role? or? Comment? No, he, he was given a job by the BBC working in archives and he's still got that job all those years later. He's still on the payroll. And that sounds to me like someone who doesn't know much about the BBC, but working in archives sounds like, you know, getting an office in the basement out of sight. It sounds very much like that. Okay. Um, among the other people who led the push against this story, have any of them, I, I know a, a report was written after the fact to sort of investigate what went yes. wrong here. It wasn't an independent report. It was a BBC report, although it was chaired by an independent person uh, from who originally worked for Sky News. Um, the report came to the conclusion that we should have broadcast the programme, that it was a mistake not to broadcast it, and that we had all the material we needed to run that. But it came to the bizarre conclusion that there must be a good reason why it was stopped. It can't have been stopped for bad reasons. Now, in the 10 years since, nobody has ever come up with a good reason. The bad reasons that it would damage the BBC, it would damage trust in the BBC, that senior old timers would be shown to have known about it and would have to go, that the BBC would have to pay out compensation to the victims. Those bad reasons are still there, but nobody has found this mysterious missing good reason for dropping the programme. Do you think, just speaking, you know, purely from, from an amoral perspective, self-interest, do you think it made sense for the BBC to do what it did? Or do you think it just damaged it way worse than it could have? It damaged it way worse. I wrote um, an email at the time, uh, which I called my, which I've called my red flag memo, which was about what I was thinking, what I was saying to my bosses. And the key thing in it really was, if we run the story, it says that in the old days, the BBC was a bad place that allowed this paedophile to prosper. If we cover up the story, the story when it comes out will be the BBC is now a yeah. bad place that covers up these activities even today. Yeah. That Okay, so do you think that this would happen again? It seems like, and just as an example, there was a comedian in, in the US, a guy named Chris D'Elia, who's not like world famous, probably isn't even that famous in America, 
and he was apparently trying to hook up with like 16 year old girls which is illegal here and yeah. um they just tweeted about it and it like tanked his career he, he's nowhere to be found basically um it, it feels like someone as famous as jimmy Savo. like oh my god how someone would just tweet about him you know what i mean like could this really happen again I mean, I think that's true. Um, but in Britain, there are two things that we haven't done. One is we haven't sorted out our libel laws. So you can be sued for libel for a tweet, just as you can for, um, you know, just as you can for a program or an article or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, and the really key one is most of the US, you have what's called mandatory reporting. If you're the head of a school or a church or the BBC and re- abuse is reported to you, you have to pass it on. In Britain still, 10 years later, we have no mandatory reporting law. So the easiest thing to do if you're the head of a school, and I've looked into a lot of these, is to close your eyes and ears to start with. When it gets too much of a problem, you write them a good reference and they go somewhere else. And that is a huge flaw in Britain that we do not have mandatory reporting. Yeah, that, that seems crazy that someone can come to you and say, hey, this person is abusing kids and you don't have to do anything about it. Yeah, it, it's mad. It is just completely mad. Most countries have now, you know, most Western countries have now brought in such laws. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I know, uh, you know, don't have a, a ton of time um, and, and you got a, a crazy week. Um, do you do you feel like I mean, you've done other hardcore journalism before, uh, you know, like Israel's nukes, uh, voter rolls being purged in Florida, lots of other uh, big stories. Um, the headwinds that you faced here, I mean, you ultimately left the BBC. Uh, was this the most challenging story to actually bring to, to air of, of your career? It, it has to be, right? No, uh, I mean, what, I mean, what happened with this one was essentially I made sure it went out on another channel. It took a year to do it, but it went out on a rival channel. Um, the you get different types of pressures. Uh, so I made a film about a rogue, well, a series of films about a rogue oil company called Trafigura, and the level of. Uh, legal intimidation on that was obviously much higher because the you know at the bbc i wasn't dealing with incoming letters on that one but you know with trafigura in that case it was you know legal intimidation massive amounts of time being taken up um you know legal letters arriving every hour by email by messenger you know you have different types of pressure in different ways or sometimes you are under People are trying to intimidate you or whatever. So it wasn't any of those pressures. Yeah. But it was obviously massive pressure. It's it's when you can't trust your own people. And that's really the first time I'd come across that. I sort of trusted the BBC as, you know, the sometimes called BBC auntie, that it's, you know, like this trustworthy institution. And it's lost a lot of that trust in recent years. Um, and that fits with um, a... Well, it fits with an agenda of people like Rupert Murdoch, who would like to see the BBC neutered and destroyed because he sees it as a rival to his operations. 
Yeah. Uh, and it makes it easier for the government to do that and to attack the BBC. I'm, I'm still a huge supporter of the BBC, despite the fact that I was forced out after that, yeah. as was everyone on my side of the argument. We were all squeezed out of the BBC. You know, we weren't sacked, but it was made clear that uh, we had no future. Yeah. Except it, maybe if we wanted to be, you know, working in, in archives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really too bad about the BBC because... We here in the States have PBS, which is, does not have the, the scope or scale of influence that the BBC does. And I, I wish you know, we had great public broadcasting. And it's a shame that sort of like the face of that in, in the UK uh, really tarnished itself for no reason. I mean, surely there's another you know, blonde cigar smoking guy out there who can host Top of the Pops, you know? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it was, um, I mean, what you have is the cover-up back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. You then have the cover-up with our, you know, our programme being stopped. And then a year later, when it started to come out on the other side, the BBC then pretended that we hadn't done an investigation. And myself and my colleague, my reporter, Liz McKean, who sadly died since, we, we just said that we're not going to be part of any cover-up. So, you know, it was a cover-up of a cover-up of a cover-up. That's not a good way to get public trust. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly not. It's, it's the opposite. Um, I, I do want to ask, but before we go, I just remember this. Um, wasn't Savile, like, getting girls for other people? Like, I, I know, I think, like, uh, some singer named, like, Gary Glitter, which is uh, another yeah. creep. Yeah, Gary Gary Glitter was a very popular early 70s uh, British sort of rock and roller. And yep. uh, yes, uh, Savile invited uh, the Duncroft girls who were 14, 15 to see his TV show. Gary Glitter was there with him. And yes, he was facilitating Gary Glitter uh, doing things to the girls and so on. But he wasn't. I think it would be wrong to think of him as working as part of a paedophile ring or anything like that. He was a loner. There were opportunities and things came up and he might be part of that, but he very much controlled things himself. He didn't want to be vulnerable to anyone else, really. You know, he wanted to control his own destiny. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I remember hearing an interview with a cop where someone was trying to say, okay, how, how would you get away with murder? And he's like, okay, give me your perfect plan. He's like, okay, me and a friend. He's like, stop. He's like, you're, you're already caught. You have one other person involved, you're done. Yeah, exactly right. Um, okay, last thing I want to ask you before we go here is uh, this story feels on some level reminiscent of, um, not, not exactly, but the, the Jeffrey Epstein story where you have a guy in elite New York circles who everybody seems to have been hanging out with and basically aware of his criminal activity and not really doing anything about it. And it seems to be just uh, an indictment of this whole culture. It's like, okay, if you guys can't protect, uh, you know, us from a, a criminal pedophile who's operating for decades, like what, what good are you for? Um, do, do you feel that way uh, on, on any level uh, about the UK police, BBC, royalty? I mean, this is a pretty damning indictment of all of them, isn't it? No, it, it is. But, uh, I mean, the one good thing I would say is what came out of it in Britain was um, more of a tendency to believe the victims. You know, I know people who 
because Savile came out, then went and said, look, my uncle raped me repeatedly when I was, you know, 13, 12, and were believed and the prosecutions, you know, were made. Um, and it sort of spawned a distrust of celebrities rather than a complete belief in everything they did. Uh, in some ways, it can be seen as something which was a sort of progenitor of Me Too movement and, you know, the fact that people like Harvey Weinstein uh, would no longer be believed against his accusers. Uh, and yeah, it can, you know, it, it's led, I think, to the fact that Epstein could be prosecuted, that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell could be prosecuted in ways that, you know, although their celebrity and wealth and power protected them, juries are more likely now to believe the victim than the abuser and prosecutors are more likely to try and try and prosecute rather than hide. Uh, I mean, still in Britain, you know, uh, out of all the people who are reported to the police for rape, less than 1% get convicted. You know, the, the levels are still unbelievable. Um, but particularly in this sort of celebrity world, I think it has slightly slightly evened up the balances a little bit, you know, so that the victim has a chance, still not very good chance, but a chance of getting justice. Well, I think that's, that's certainly better than where we're starting from. So that, that is a positive. Um, before we go, is, is there anything, uh, you, you have a website, uh, any books, et cetera, people can go, if they want to check out more of your work? Uh, well, um, I'm the editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Um, I can give you a link to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism site, or my Twitter handle is at Myrian Tweets. Myrian, uh, thank you very much for your time, and uh, yeah. have a great rest of your day. No, I think that was one of the best bits of my day, actually. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Even the way things have been going. All right, I'll leave you to it. All righty, take care. Okay. Thank you to Myran Jones and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Yammy. See you next time. <laughs>